0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, King Size Lessons on Faith and Failure, with a message titled, King Jehoshaphat, Our Eyes Are on God. So turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 20 as we join Dr. Neufeld
1: now. On June 18th, 1940, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill delivered what was, well, to be perhaps his most stirring speech. The nation of England stood on the verge of war with Hitler and the Nazis, and the outcome was anything but certain, and Churchill had a choice. He could have described what was happening as a great crisis for his nation, but he didn't. In fact, here's what he said. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, And the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties, And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. (laughs) So from that vantage point, this was not a grave crisis, but a great opportunity, their finest hour. Later, as Churchill was to reflect upon what all that meant, here's what he said. To every man, there comes in his lifetime that special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered a chance to do a very special thing, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified for that which would be his finest hour. Now, I've quoted all of that not because I want to give you a history lesson on the thinking of Winston Churchill, but I'm intrigued by this thought. You and I have been taught, and correctly so, that God has created us for a purpose. We live in this time period, not by accident, but by design. We face the challenges we do because God in his infinite foreknowledge has placed us here. Perhaps there is for each of us that moment in which our purpose is actually known, that is, if we prepare ourselves for it. Well, I'll reserve judgment on that question, but I do wish to tell you of a man who did reach his finest hour, and that man was King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat ruled the nation of Judah from 873 to 848 BC, a period of 25 years. He became king when he was 35. He died at the age of 60. He's not a man without his faults and sins, but he is a man of God. He never once fell into the pagan practices that tempted other kings. In fact, whether he knew it or not, his entire reign was preparing him for that one moment that was his finest hour. Jehoshaphat was the son of King Asa, and if you listened yesterday, you learned that Asa was a reformer, someone who brought his nation back from idol worship to the worship of the Lord. And in many ways, Jehoshaphat took over where his father Asa had left off. Without going into all the details, let me briefly outline what Jehoshaphat accomplished. First, we're told that he was a man who sought God. He was a man who cultivated his relationship with God. Secondly, he built up his country's fortifications, making sure that he was providing safety and working for the welfare of his people. And thirdly, he strengthened the courts of Israel and made sure that his nation had justice. And finally, he was deeply concerned for his people's spiritual well-being. Even though he, like his father Asa, was busy ridding the land of idols and urging the people to seek God, he knew it wasn't enough. According to 2 Chronicles 17... He commissioned priests and the Levites to teach all Judah to be faithful to the law of the Lord. See, what in fact he does is he sets up a national program of discipleship, making sure that everyone in Judah at every age would be thoroughly instructed in the word of God. Jehoshaphat knew that it wasn't enough to remove idols. People had to learn the word, and so people were learning the law and the feasts of Israel, how worship was to be conducted. In fact, the whole nation Was called upon to draw near to god well you might think that that was his calling in life and you'd be right jehoshaphat is a shepherd king or a pastor king who's drawing his nation to god he wants his nation's eyes to be on god so that in all decisions of life they know how to look to god but what jehoshaphat didn't know is that all that would be tested by a crisis that his nation judah would face but as we've seen the crisis would be an opportunity so let's read Second Chronicles 21 to 4. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them the Metunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hatzatzon Tamar, that is in Engedi." Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, this war seems to have been a revenge war for a war mentioned in Second Kings chapter 3. And there's a lot of background to that. Jehoshaphat, although he was making his nation strong, was simply not strong enough. And so he had a weakness. Jehoshaphat regularly entered into alliances with the king of Israel. And Israel had become a very wicked nation. And back in 2 Kings chapter 3, Israel is about to go to war with Moab, a war which it would seem Moab would have won. But the king of Israel picks up the phone, if you will, and calls Jehoshaphat and asks if Judah could join them in the war with Moab, and Jehoshaphat agrees and joins with Israel and Edom to defeat Moab. And we don't know the time period or the exact sequence of the events, but Moab remembers what Judah did. And in revenge, the Moabites form an alliance with the Ammonites and another people group actually living within the territory of Edom, and they decide that they'll pay Jehoshaphat back. And Jehoshaphat knows that by himself he's outmanned, he's outgunned, and he's helpless. This creates a crisis because what has happened is that these nations have decided that that in order to assert their independence and their power over the region, that they must completely destroy the nation of Judah. And that creates a crisis of fear. And that's exactly what we're told in verse three. Jehoshaphat is afraid. He has no doubt afraid because of the physical danger, but he might have been afraid for another reason. He had been told in the past by God not to form an alliance with Israel, but he'd done it anyway. Was God still with him? But a crisis can be useful. It can call us to see God, and in many ways, all of Jehoshaphat's activities had prepared him for that moment. He'd been commissioning the teachings of the Word of God throughout the land, and now he knew what to do. He would proclaim a fast throughout all of Judah. I find that fascinating because, as far as I can tell, That's the only occasion in which any king of Judah ever called the whole nation to fast. Well, I know that in Judges 20, Israel as a nation once fasted, and Samuel did once call the nation to fast, but as far as I know, this is the only time a king ever did it. And I think it was a very special moment in the history of the nation. There had been a national turning to God and learning how God wanted them to live so that when a crisis came, they would know what to do. They would fast as a nation. prayer meetings in every city, in every region, and they would prepare their hearts for God. Then at the end of fasting and praying, the population would journey to Jerusalem and come and pray and seek God and seek help from God. I wish we always faced crises in this way. I'm reminded of those telling words in James 4, verse 2, which say that we don't have because we don't ask God. Now, as a point of illustration, let me tell you of a man who lived with one crisis after another. His name was Joseph Scriven. And he lived in Ontario back in the 1800s. And when Joseph Scriven was 25 years of age, on the night before he was to be married, the happiest day of his life, that night his fiancée was accidentally drowned in a lake. And from that crisis, Scriven gave himself wholly to the work of the Lord. His ministry was directed to the poor. He preached. He gave away everything he had. And his story is a story of a selfless life directed towards God. Well, some time later, he learned that his mom had a serious illness. He was unable to see her because of lack of funds and because he gave everything away. And so without getting bitter and without complaining, but in order to comfort her, he simply wrote her a letter. And in the letter, he enclosed these words, words that have given hope to so many people to this day. He wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Yeah, you know those words. Joseph Scriven knew that prayer and seeking God is the answer to every crisis. And that's exactly what Jehoshaphat knew as well. But to get there, we need to rid ourselves of anger and frustration and bitterness and be led by our crisis to our finest hour, not despair, but to God, and that's the king-size lesson that we learn from King Jehoshaphat.
0: You know, some things don't mix: oil and water, plaid's and polka dots. It's not that these couplings never occur, but our minds don't really readily pair them. The same holds true with our pains and joys, both expected, but we rarely consider them as simultaneous. But God adjusts our thinking. The Bible reminds us that joy can be found in trials and our tears can be turned into laughter. It's not instant or self-generating, but a matter of God's grace working within us, like gold refined in fire. Joy can be found in the midst of struggle. So to encourage you as our free gift this month, we want to send you a combo CD series from Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five joy filled Laugh Again episodes. Joy in Tough Times, our free gift to you just for calling 1 800 663 2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: From Jehoshaphat, we can learn four lessons about crisis and about prayer. Now, verses 5 to 12 constitute one of the greatest prayers of the Bible. And just by the way, I don't know if you have noticed, but the great prayers of the Bible are all uttered in times of crisis. From the prayer of Abraham before the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, to the prayer of Jesus in the garden, it is crisis that motivates us to place our eyes onto God. But why is it that the prayers of the Bible often sound so different from ours today? Well, I mean, why is it that sometimes our prayers sound so desperate or so self-serving or so ineffective? And some of the great prayers seem so powerful. Well, I think the answer is found in this prayer of Jehoshaphat. You know, From him, we can learn four lessons for effective prayer in crisis. First notice, Jehoshaphat confesses the sovereignty of God. Look at verses five and six. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. In other words, God is in control. The early church knew that. They knew he controlled the actions of Herod and Pontius Pilate. And he controlled the arrest of peter and john and that's exactly what jehoshaphat prayed in his day god you rule the nations you rule moab you rule ammon you rule the metunites they may be arrayed against us but you are king over them and you call them to do your will there's something extremely powerful about that knowledge notice that jehoshaphat does not say oh god can you do something but rather oh god Help me to see that you're in control. Open my eyes. Help me to focus on your might, your power, and on your sovereign control over all things. Well, you and I need to confess that as well. What happens is only what your sovereign plan has predestined to take place. Can you say that? Do you believe that? God, you rule over all. You rule my debts. You rule my job. You rule my professor at the university. You rule my illness. My children, my wife, or my husband. You rule the nations of the world with their kings and their presidents and prime ministers and their dictators. You rule them all. Now, second, the king remembered what God had promised. Verses 7 and 9 Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it, and they have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. I want you to notice first that Jehoshaphat remembered whose land it was. This land, he reminds God, is the land you promised us. This land is the one you gave us. And you said that it is ours as an everlasting possession. That is, not unlike the prayer of Moses when God was threatening to destroy Israel for their sin, you remember that Moses reminded God that he had promised Abraham that he would make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And given that he had made that as a promise, how could God wipe out Israel at this time? That's what Moses prays. I wonder if you're picking up a theme. Do you know how many of us regularly go to prayer without claiming any promise from God? Lord, heal Aunt Martha. Oh, Lord, I'm struggling with temptation. Help me. Oh, Lord, I need this business deal to work. Oh, Lord, help me to pass this exam. I mean, most of our lives are filled with prayers just like that. And just to be sure, there's nothing wrong with any of those prayers. But do you know whether God will answer them? Do you? You know, most of us don't know. We're like the blind man throwing a dart up against a wall, hoping that there's a target there and that we're going to hit the bull's eye. We're not filled with faith. We're hoping for, I don't know how to say it, dumb luck. What if we started our request by remembering what God has promised us? Let's say that we're going through a time of great fear. And you start by praying Isaiah 26, verse 3. Lord, you've promised that you would keep him in perfect peace, him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you or let's say you're up against a major decision in your life, and you begin your prayer not with, Lord, show me what to do, but, O oh Lord, you have promised in James 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given him. Or instead of saying, Lord, help me win this battle with temptation, you know, you should start your prayer by saying, Oh Lord, you have promised in 1 John 3, verse 9, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Today, O Lord, I come to you in shame for my sins, but I'm calling upon that promise today, O Lord. I'm laying claim to that which you've promised me, to which you have given me as my inheritance. (laughs) Do that. Now third, Jehoshaphat is specific in his request, verses 10 and 12. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? several things I see in these verses. I mean, first of all, Jehoshaphat remembers that God would not allow Israel to destroy those nations, and that's why they exist. In other words, God, this is your problem. You wanted those nations to exist. And secondly, he asks God specifically for what he wants. He asks God to execute judgment on them. And I want to say, we need to be specific in our praying. Now, fourth, Notice Jehoshaphat confesses confidence in God. Verses 12b to 13. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord and their little ones, their wives and their children. You have to imagine the moment. Standing before the nation, the king who represents government and the future of the nation tells the people the awful truth. He says, i don't know what to do think now about the dads and the mums and their little children all who are affected by this are listening in absolute amazement he says he has no strategy no master plan but he prays my eyes O oh god are fixed on you i'm dependent on you i'm convinced that's where i need to be what happens when you have no backup plan in your life and all that you have is god is that okay with you Is that the most exciting place? Is that your finest hour, or is that what you dread? Can you answer that? Jehoshaphat is confident in God, and what happens next tells us why this is his finest hour, because out of this prayer of faith comes this magnificent moment in which the clouds part, and we see clearly, if even for just a brief moment, what was there all the time. So let's go to verses 14 and 15. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You know, in this moment of crisis, God speaks through his prophet and God says, look, it is true. Everything that Jehoshaphat has prayed is true. I promised you this land, I gave you this land. I rule over these nations, and by my mercy, your enemies now exist. And furthermore, you can't beat your enemies, and you don't know what to do. Yes, that's true, and therefore, this isn't your battle, it's mine. I try to remember that in my battles, you know, as I battle for my own holiness, I remind myself that he chose me from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The battle is the Lord's. In whatever ministry assignment that I've been given, I feel completely inadequate for the task, and there I remind myself that his grace is sufficient for me. His power is perfected in weakness. And if you have time to read Second Chronicles 20, you'll read one of the most remarkable battles that are recorded in the Bible. See, here's what happens. Instead of sending the army into the front of the battle, Jehoshaphat, it's incredible. He sent the choir. He sent the singers. They came singing and worshiping, and they came adoring their God. And then the text says, The Lord set an ambush, and then he routs the enemies of Judah. It was adoration and praise that brought this great victory. I'm reminded that God has set an ambush against all my sins and all the satanic designs against me. He set an ambush by sending his own son in a most remarkable battle, and that all I needed to do is stand and see the salvation of my God. See, that's the king-sized lesson that we learn from Jehoshaphat. Trust in the Lord and see our finest hour as God is glorified in us. And always keep your eyes on Christ. He is our great champion who fights our battles for us.
0: Thanks for your message, John. Can I ask you, how do you cope with unanswered prayer? I mean, particularly when what we are praying about seems just so far beyond our capability to resolve.
1: Yeah, I I think one of the things uh, I have to continue to remind myself of is that there are, in fact, no unanswered prayers. God is always answering but sometimes I may be disappointed with his answer and um, and assume that it should have been different. But one of the things that I know I need to do is to say, Lord, the thing that I had thought you would answer in the way in which you did, I find you didn't answer that way. So help me to understand what you're about so that you know my will can be coordinated to yours. Uh, open my eyes, help me to see. And so And I think that's one of the ways that we can do that. I mean, it always begins with this fundamental approach that says God's ways are better than our ways. So let's be content in that. Thanks, John.
0: And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, King Size Lessons on Faith and Failure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Every day we hear from listeners from right across the country, and your words of encouragement mean so much. Sean recently wrote, I often listen to Dr. John's Bible teaching while driving to work. It's given me great insights into God's message to his people. Back to the Bible Canada is indeed an inspiration. But we're so grateful for messages just like these, but they only happen because of your partnership In making Bible teaching you can trust available to as many people, in as many places, in as many ways as possible. One way we want to do that this month is by sending you our very new free combo CD series called Joy in Tough Times. Five messages from Dr. John and five Laugh Again episodes to encourage you and to remind you of where confident joy is really found. So just call us today for your free copy of Joy in Tough Times by calling 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting
1: backtothebible.ca.